I was having a discussion with my wife, Candace, the other night about a uh, discovery that I had doing a simple research on Amazon's top 10 best-selling book lists. Well, actually, more, not singular, actually, lists. Now, as we you know, exit a season of, of gratitude and thankfulness with Thanksgiving, and now we're entering another season of gratitude and thankfulness with Christmas, I thought, you know what, I know what the Bible says about gratitude, but what, what does the culture have to say? So in my search to dive in deep into the book list provided by Amazon itself as being the largest book provider in, in, the, in the world, I came to a realization that even though it seemingly looked like there was two, there's several different options of finding a peaceful life, a grateful life, essentially they were saying the same thing. No matter if they're on one, you know, pendulum or the paradigm of hey, gentle self-care, you know, you poured yourself out, pour yourself into yourself, be kind to yourself, or the more of the tough love, tough it out, nothing's going to hurt me, this is how you learn not to, how to care. Regardless of what they're saying, they're essentially saying the same point. The solution is yourself. In order, and, the, and furthermore, they were using gratitude not as something to be achieved, but as a tool to find your more of your self-worth. Regardless if it was the tough love or regardless if it was the gentle self-care, their goal and their purpose was to say, you know, you are the solution. Now, Bible-believing Christians, we understand that, okay, that's not the case. We are not the solution. Only, only Christ is. But my concern is, is that we, unfortunately, give they give, we give them too much credit. Not to say these, these books cannot be helpful. The secular culture can still find common grace. Even the Bible describes that, they, that God has granted common grace to people to know, but the purpose is for them to turn back to God. So we can look at these books written by Harvard professors or the Amazon top 10 book list and find there's going to be common grace found within them. However, unfortunately, I think many of us depend on them a lot more than we depend on the wisdom given, for, given to us by God himself. And especially the wisdom and warning found in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, if you have your phone or your tablet or you have a paper Bible, open it up, flip to, flip to uh, Luke chapter 7 beginning in thir verse 36 as Vince just read or tap on there, scroll there. But here is the, the issue that we're gonna, going to discover in Luke 7 is that even though no matter how tough of a skin you can make, essentially they're saying put on an armor, protect yourself. Or the self-gentle care, you know, self-love that you can show to yourself, the, the self-care, the gentle, pad yourself up. Essentially saying armor yourself up. It's your, you are the solution. Protect yourself. But if, I'm sorry to say that, that both of these, no matter how tough you are or how um, focused on yourself you are, it's going to crumble, it's going to fall, it's going to fail. And this is what we're going to see in Luke 7, because we're going to see that a, a life, a heart without God, a heart that hasn't been changed by God, if we do not have this, we're just going to be in an endless and vicious cycle of trying to find a peaceful life, yet let alone a grateful one. See, they're going to use gratefulness as a tool to serve themselves, but instead, gratefulness defined biblically, as we're going to see in Luke 7, is just an expression of a reality. Is an action that is drawn to the reality of what Christ has done. 
So let's start in the beginning in verse 36, and let's discover the foundation for the, of, of the Christian's joy and gratefulness and, find it, and understand this, and it only comes with peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. So this is essentially develop a grateful life. Step one is this, verse 36. One of the Pharisees, Simon specifically, asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, to give a better picture, Jesus was not sitting in a chair like you are. He was reclined, usually on the left side, like this. Their feet, his feet were, their feet were sticking away. They had a square table, usually, so they're facing each other, able to have a conversation. But their stinky, smelly feet that they've been you know, walking all day in the dirt are far, far away from their noses and far, far away from the food. So just to help you paint this picture, because what happens next is verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, who had a a pretty well-known reputation, most likely prostitution, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment or perfume, something expensive, and standing behind him at his feet. Now, remember, he's leaning, so his feet are pointing away from him, so it makes sense that she could stand behind his feet. Weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wipe them with with the hair of her head. Now, this is what just some cute little dribble. This was a gushing, just uh, the, the water fountain of her eyes just poured out on Jesus' feet. And, her, and now she's letting down her hair. In the Jewish culture, that's a, kind of a big no-no. You, you keep your hair tight. You keep your hair, your hair locked together. And imagine, ladies, you, you have expensive perfume, perfume, excuse me, expensive shampoo and condition. Imagine taking your hair and wiping someone's dirty and smelly feet with it. So something significant happened in this woman's life, and she knows that Jesus is the answer to this. She wiped her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Essentially, what is being described here is not just gratitude, it's humility. It doesn't need to say this is humility defined by the woman. It's that this is what humility looks like in someone's life because she knew who Jesus was. That's why she went to him, responded like, I know where this guy is. I need to go. Maybe she heard him preach somewhere. Maybe she heard about the message that he was teaching the world. She said, he is the solution. He is the answer. He is the Messiah. I need to run to him. And she clearly knew her place in Christ's place. Normally, we see this depicted in movies where someone's begging the king for mercy. What are they doing? They're at his feet. They're kissing his hand. They're kissing his feet saying, mercy, mercy, mercy. And here is a woman, a sinful woman, saying, I need mercy. I, you are the king. I am lowly. I have to humble myself as I approach you. Unlike the Pharisee, as we will discover, but let's focus on this sinful woman. Let's take her example to heart. And step number one to have a, develop a grateful life is this first point. Respond to your sin with humility. This is the only, improper, this is the only proper response when we really understand our sin, that we have to respond with humility. Let me put it this way. My freshman year of, of college, I was very prideful and um, essentially cocky. I, uh, my, the first words out of my mouth to my college football teammates as I walked onto the practice field, I still remember this vividly. Here I am strutting up, freshman in, in college. I walk up to my teammates who, I'm a freshman, they're juniors and seniors, And I just tell them, I don't say hi or nice to meet you. I'm glad to play with you. I say, I'm just here for four years to go to the NFL. So this is what I'm doing. (laughs) 
You can clearly see how blind and delusional I was. I didn't know my place. You know, I'm a freshman. He's like, I've been playing this sport for four years. Who are you? I didn't realize that. I'm like, I, I got this. I, I, I'm the best in the country. I can do this whatever I want, whatever. It's good. I didn't realize that football is one of those cool, unique sports that my success is contingent on their success. We all have to be successful in order to succeed ourselves. But here I'm going, I don't need you. I'm just, you're just a stepping stone in my way. And clearly, I was just so self-focused. See, I was the guy that if you ever watch sports, if you love sports, or you don't care about sports, you see that cockily athlete on the field, that prideful, that prideful person, you go, I kind of hope he gets blindsided in the head. <laughs> I kind of hope he gets knocked out a little bit. I hope he get, learns his lesson. See, I was that guy. And unfortunately, we look at the world as well and see them people's lives going, man, you just need to get clocked in the head. What are you doing? Lying all the time, gossiping all the time, slandering all the time. The problem is we are not, when we do that, we're not acting like the woman. We need to turn and go, well, I am probably as prideful or more prideful than the people that I'm looking around at me. See, the sinful woman understood three things clearly. The first thing that she understood, her is her proper place before God, God with regard to her sin. She took her sin extremely seriously. How do we know that? Through her actions. And we need to take a look at our own lives and take an assessment and take a step back and allow God through his word to say, how am I really doing? How am I? We need, I need to take my sin a lot more seriously. I mean, it, sometimes we, we, we got to stop with the whole, ah, it's okay. You know, you, you, someone cuts you off, you get mad, you, you say an explicitive, and, and it's like, you know, I, I shouldn't have done it. Oh, it's okay. I understand. You come home for a long day at work, you, you, you say something rude to your wife, you say something rude to your husband, you, you yell at your kids and say, oh, no, it's okay, I had a long day at work, my boss is unreasonable, it's not okay. We have to take our sin a lot more seriously, because when we don't, we're more like Simon than the sinful, humble woman. James has a strong message for us as we kind of laugh our way through, through sin. He says in James 4, 9 through 10, it says, be wretched, okay, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy into gloom. Why? Because you're laughing at the sin that you're committing. You're laughing at the sins that others are committing. When someone blasts some politician, even instead of showing honor to them, you go, that's funny, I agree, because I agree with you right now. When we decide to yell and explicit about someone who on the road, or we just decide to take our anger out on our family when we come home from work, we justify ourselves. And God says, turn your laughter into mourning. Because here's my stern warning. Humble yourselves before the Lord. If you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And we're seeing this played out right now. Who's the one being exalted in the story? A sinful, humble woman who we're talking about who rightly responded. So we need to admit that we are worse sinners than we give ourselves credit to be. We are worst sinners if you don't believe me, how about we do this? Imagine with me, this is an illustration I heard another pastor say that is so good I have to use it again. Imagine that we had a camera just following you all, of, all day long. And not only that, this camera could read your mind. So not only will it see all the actions that you commit, it reads your mind to let people know what you really think about them. How good are you now? We are worse off. And this is what the Bible says in Luke 12. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark will be heard in the light. 
We have whispered in private rooms it would be proclaimed on the rooftops, on the housetops. Eventually, our sin will be found out. If not in this life, at judgment itself. And this woman understood this because she laid her sin at Jesus' feet. And we can see that through her weeping, through her mourning. And not only this, this is the warning that God has for us when we do not think, our, if we think ourselves too highly. He says, I tell you, do not fear those who kill the body. After that, they have nothing more they can do. Well, people who can kill me are scary people. I don't want to be murdered, thank you very much. I don't want to be shot, thank you very much. I don't want to be stabbed. I don't want to be tortured, okay? And God says, don't fear them. Who do you fear? Verse 5 of Luke 12. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him. He's talking about God, by the way. After he has killed, because God has the authority, the only authority to kill, because he has created us, he has authority to cast into hell. I don't know if that's new to you, but here's, some, here's a newsflash. Satan does not control hell. Satan is not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell, and he'll be sending Satan there to be tormented for eternity. God is in charge, and he has the authority to cast into hell. So, as the Bible says, tell, th- yes, I tell you, fear him. We need to take our sin a lot more seriously. Then, if we did, we will rightly respond like this woman. Because here's the second thing she, that she understood, this humble woman. That a humble person knows their utter and absolute dependence on God. Their utter and absolute dependence on God. There's no perfect illustration than what Jesus gave in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. You can write that down, Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. To help you further, I have, I have one child, he's nine months old, and he's the cutest thing in the world. He smiles at everyone. You get to meet him after service. But he is fully and utterly and absolutely dependent on my wife and I to take care of him, or even for y'all to take care of him. He cannot feed himself. He cannot change himself. He cannot keep himself warm. He can barely put himself to sleep right now. But essentially, he is fully dependent on us for his survival. We are utterly dependent on God for our own survival, especially eternally. So as this woman expresses her utter dependence on God by coming to his feet, we need to express that same humility. Sometimes it's simple as just writing down the sins that we have committed each day. Do this exercise when you go home. It's not going to be a very comfortable one, so I'm not sorry. Go home and write down what sins you committed since you woke up this morning. Ones that you, sins of omission. Things you should have done but didn't do. Sins you've committed in, your, in your, just your mind that only you know about. And the sins you committed throughout the day that people can see. Then you began to re, you'll begin to realize, yeah, I'm not that good actually. And you'll begin to realize your utter dependence. When we start to lay, stack the tables against us, we'll begin to realize, okay, I do need God. I do need help. I need him utterly. And this, way, this is what Paul expresses in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16. He says, Paul says, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. I was one that was murdering Christians, thinking I was doing a good thing. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly. I had no idea what I was, what I was doing. I was blind to it. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. When we begin to realize how foremost of a sinner that we 
are, we begin to realize how utterly dependent we are on God for the salvation for this point right here, that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Essentially what this woman understood and what we need to understand is not, it's, life is not about us. It's only about God. This woman understood it. Here she is. Who, who she, she could have just walked into the room and just laid down, hey, Jesus, I believe you saved me. It's good to see you. I get to lounge next to you and hang out with you. No, she realizes who Jesus is and who, what her sin has done, and she's at his feet, humbled, because she realized it's not about her. It's like me in, in college. I was so self-focused that you, you want me to get clocked in the head on a Saturday afternoon. We need a, a humble person understands we, we cannot be self-focused. A, pas- a great passage to memorize is Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is a very hard thing to do. Let each one of you not only look to the own, your own interests. Again, we do need to take care of ourselves. We do need to eat. We do need to sleep. We need to make sure we have money to pay the bills and have a home for shelter, but also the interests of others. One simple way to do this is to serve your church, serve the body. It's like Vince said during the announcements, life groups are so crucial because it's a way for you to intimately know people so you can intimately know their needs so that you can intimately serve those needs and give glory to God. Not to puff yourself up, just to feel good. Like like the self-help, self-motivation books would say, hey, use gratitude, serve people so you can feel better. No, I'm saying serve people so you can glorify God. And in, in, in that way, you will, yes, guess what? Yes, you, you will feel better. But don't do it for the feelings do it because you want to express the gratitude, because your humility, you're recognizing your humility because of your sins. Imagine what people would think on Christmas Eve when we go out and bring people, bring the, bring the city and the surrounding areas of the hill country to come hear the gospel at Christmas Eve. Think about these new people who come in and they encounter our church if we do this, if we humbly respond to our sins. Imagine their experience. I mean, maybe they'd be like, well, that, that, these pastors are just angry people, but at least these people, man, they're humble. They are humble people. And I want to get to know them better. I want to, get, I want to know why they're humble, why they can have hope during tribulation, because that is what happens when we live out humility in our lives as, into, as, a, as a response to our sins. And also what begins to happen is that as we approach God with humility, God will use that to start tearing down an old self, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, he starts to tear down an old self and build up a new one in his image, his perfect image. And that is step number two into developing a grateful life. So turn back with me to Luke 7, beginning in verse 39. So the woman is washing Jesus' feet. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he was, he was shocked. He was in horror. He was appalled. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if this man was truly speaking from God, he would, not, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. Because he knows the reputation of this woman. He's like, oh, well, a prophet, if he know, has a, connection, a deep connection with God, he would know who this person is. So I don't know if this, Jesus knows who this person is. Because, as we continue, he, she is touching him. She's a sinner. She's impure. A pastor put it this way that, he put it this way, Simon's biggest miscalculation right here is misunderstanding that 
this woman is not the only sinful person in the room. Jesus was already dining with a sinner. And Jesus, in epic form right now, is about to utterly humble this Pharisee. So continue with me in verse 40. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, which is never a good thing to hear Jesus tell you. I have something to say to you. You better be ready. And so Simon answers, say it, teacher, respectfully, not very hopeful, but respectful. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. Essentially a day's wage. So if we took, you know, just say a minimum, take a minimum wage, just bump it up a little bit. A day's wage, um, a, five, a 500 days wage is going to be roughly about, you know, let's say $90,000 in, in Texas or 50, which is about 90000 Just to give you perspective. It's both still a lot of money, but obviously one is a lot more because one is about a year and a half, years, a year and a half wages and the other one is just a couple days wage. Now, when they could not pay, verse 42, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Another way to say this is to be more grateful towards him. Simon said, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus responded and said to him, you have judged rightly. You have discerned correctly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, so he's turning to the woman, he's turning around, and this is where the smackdown begins. He's like, here is an example to condemn you, Simon, but it's also an example to condemn you and me. Let's dive in. What does Jesus have to say for us? Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. My feet are are dusty. They're dirty. You didn't give me a wet towel to wipe them off myself, let alone do it yourself. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She has put her face at my feet where you didn't even give me a towel to wipe my feet. You didn't even honor me. You weren't even courteous. You weren't even sacrificial. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, meaning you didn't even greet me. You didn't give me a handshake. You didn't give me a hug. You didn't say, hey, Jesus, it's nice for you to come over to my house. You just brought me in. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. She is greeting him properly. He could have just shown respect to to Jesus just as a human, but he didn't realize this guy is the divine king. This woman got it, and that's why she's treating him like a king. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, just cheap, common olive oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment, perfume, that's expensive and rare. She is generous while you were cheap. It's pretty rough right now, but let's keep going. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which is showing that he, Jesus is a prophet, because when Simon said this to himself, he was just thinking this. He wasn't just mumbling under, under his breath that Jesus happened to hear. He was just thinking this. Well, a prophet can read minds. Well, Jesus can read your mind, and he knows who this woman is completely. So Jesus is a prophet, but as we read in Hebrews, he's, he's more of a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets, the, prophets that were, who, the person who the prophets are pointing to. The sins were many, verse 47, and they are forgiven. They're taken care of. They're clean. They're paid for. For she loved much. As we'll discover later, it's not her love that saves her, it's her faith that saves her. And our love right now is just an expression of her faith in Jesus. But he who's forgiven little loves little. Simon's biggest problem is that he was blind to the gravity of his sin. He is just thinking, I- I'm righteous. The Pharisees were not righteous people. 
They pretended to be righteous. They were hypocrites. They would do good things. They would be holy in front of people. But as the Bible describes in their homes and in their lives, they were manipulative. They were liars. And they were just in it for themselves. They just wanted themselves to be puffed up. Simon just thought, I just need a little bit of my sin cleaned. Not realizing he needed a whole heart change. He needed his whole life clean. And the woman understood it, but Simon did not. It's because Simon was blind. Not physically, but as the Bible describes it, spiritually. We need God to pluck off the scales of our eyes. And he need, God needs to pluck off the scales from this Simon's eyes, this Pharisee's eyes, so he can see his sin. He can see his folly and see his coming destruction. Pride was the root of Simon's problem. So this is point number two. This is step number two to develop a grateful life is to eradicate pride out of your life. Eradicate pride out of your life. And eradicate is a strong word because we have to hunt it down. We have to take it and just squash it. We have to hate it as much as I, more than I hate ants. I just, here's something about me. I hate ants. I despise ants. I like ants far away from me. They can enjoy God's creation out of my property, especially these tire, these tire, Texas fire ants. They can just stay out of my property. But even the tiny, cute little black ants that New Braunfels has, I hate them. Back, back where Candace and I were from, when we were in our first apartment, um, these ants, they would just they would pop out of these places. I mean, there's a little gap, a tiny little gap within the grout of underneath our bathtub. They would just pop out there, and there would be hundreds of them. So what I do, I mercilessly murder them all and say, get out of my house. And then they find, okay, here's strategy number two. They found the other bathtub of the other room and popped out of there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hunt them down now. Hands and knees fall on their dumb little trail. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to kill all of you and find your nest. So what happens next? They pop out of my fa- the, the faucets of, the, of the, each tub, and they found a strategy. I couldn't find them. They were behind my microwave. Here I am, like an idiot, with my phone, like following the cabinets, like a fool, trying to like, okay, there's the ant. Okay, he's going down here. He's going like this. I'm like, I just, I hate ants so much. I want them gone. So what happens when we move to Texas, I get into my home, and what happens? I find ants. They're a little more cute than the ones where I'm from. But I don't want them in my home. So I'm like, I'm tired of hunting them down. I'm calling a bug guy. I'm getting the big guns. I'm getting someone else. And finally, you're able to get, get rid of them for, for now until spring comes. But this is how we need to eradicate you know, sin, especially pride in our lives. We need to get on our hands and knees. We need to follow its stinky little trail to figure out where is my pride hiding in my heart? Where is it rooted? Where is it harboring? You might, it might take a journey. It might take a while, but it's worthwhile. And sometimes you need, you actually want, we need someone else. We need Christ himself to eradicate for us. But sometimes we need being people to bring people in our lives to show us this is where the ants are popping out. This is where the pride is popping out in your life. You see, Simon failed utterly and dismally at this. Jesus has a warning, but also he has a remedy. So let's talk about the warning first. The warning is that pride blinds you. But what does it blind you from? Three things. First thing is, it blinds you from the coming judgment. See if you can finish the sentence with me. God opposes the? That's right. God opposes the proud. Now, we, we, unfortunately, we, we think Jesus so lowly. We, we, we're entering Christmas season. I go, Jesus is in a manger. Jesus is this gentle, you know, lowly you know, man. Again, yeah, he is, he is gentle and lowly, but he's also the divine king who's coming in Revelation and his, and his horse to destroy wickedness. 
So when he says God opposes the proud, this is like you're facing off against an army, against a mighty king. But what causes that? Blindness comes from several things. The pastor once said a lateral comparison, a comfortable life, because we think we're okay. We think we're okay compared to other people. We think we're okay because we have, we have our home. We have our families. We have our jobs. We're, God must be okay with me because I'm, I'm being blessed. I'm not in hunger and need. No, you're, you're not okay. That's just called common grace. And common grace, grace is supposed to point you back to God. That's what Romans 2, 3 through 5 talks about. When we just say, like, I'm okay with God because I'm living a comfortable life, this is God's words to us. Do you presume on the riches of his God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, because you are blind, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment comes and will be revealed. You have to, we have to realize we are not okay. Without God, we are not okay. And if you decide to continue to reject this and say, you know, I, I just don't, I don't want to listen to you. I don't care. I'm going to say, I'm not that prideful. I'm fine, Pastor Evan. Thank you very much. I'm saved by grace alone. Yes, you are saved by grace alone, but we are saved by grace because of our wickedness. Here's a really stern warning that's going to be very uncomfortable to preach, but this is something that, here's a stern warning. If we decide to reject people's calling, you know, reject of us eradicating pride from our life, to say, no, I'm going to harbor it, thank you very much. I, I want to keep it here. This is the words. If you're going to res- not respond to the good news that Christ has died in your place, he lived a life in your place, died in your place, rose from the dead in your place, here's hard words from Hebrews 10, 29 to 31. Hebrews 10, 29 to 31. If you decide to reject this, verse 29, how much more punishment, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved on those, the one who has trampled under, under the, underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed? Essentially, here's the gospel. You can be saved by repenting and trusting in Christ because Jesus died for your sins. And you say, no, my pride is, I'm fine with my pride. Thank you very much. You are trampling on the blood of Christ. And then here's the warning, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God's vengeance is real, and he will repay. These are all the warnings. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. The Son of Man will return with his angels in the glory of his Father and repay each person, you and me, according to what he has done. Not a blanket punishment, but a very specific one. It is a fearful, verse 31 of Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Stop ignoring God's warning. You're hearing Pastor Hayden preach week after week after week. You're new here. You're hearing God, you know, uh, word of God preached to you. Stop ignoring God. Stop ignoring the warning. Examine yourself. But have someone else examine you. Use the word of God. Use God to help examine you. Where is pride in my life? I need to get this out now but also bring other people in. It's humble to ask your spouse, where have I been prideful? It's hard to ask your coworkers, to ask your friends, ask people in your life group in an intimate way, how I, where's pride popping up in my life? And just listen. Because the, what happens is we will become blind, not only to the judgment, but also to the damage that we're causing. If we decide to ignore, you're just a rampaging bowl in a china shop, not realizing it. As Paul is described in Acts 8.3, he 
He was ravaging, Paul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. It wasn't like prison today, like, okay, you'd be in prison, you'd be set free. No, it was prison to, towards execution. So imagine your life group this week, someone busts down the walls and say, these people are Christians, you're arrested knowing that you're going to die. This is how blind Paul was, and this is how blind we are if we reject the good news and submitting to God saying, okay, I'm not that good, and I need your help. I need, your dep- I need to be dependent on you. We need to stop, to stop and look from God's vantage point. First, by using Scripture. Not using the other books written by the world. Use Scripture to help examine your life and bring people in into your life to help. Like I said, your spouse, maybe parents, maybe even your kids, close friends, coworkers, ask, how have I hurt you? And don't make excuses, just listen. And pray for a listening heart because you'll begin to realize the horror it is to listen to how you have hurt people around you. I used to love watching war movies because I used to be all into special effects. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I didn't realize that happened. But as I began to actually study history and learn about these wars in a more intimate, first account way, to learn about what happened with soldier versus soldier, or even worse, soldiers versus these civilians, I, I don't enjoy these movies as much because I began to realize the horror it really is. When we begin to really sit and allow sin to reveal its ugly self, we will be horrified. But it would lead us to find the remedy. And the remedy can be found in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Write that down. Read it later this week. Romans 12, 9 through 21. It is not on your application questions, but it's a good passage to memorize, to live out. The remedy to fight pride. There, there's the stern warning of not eradicating pride, but here is the remedy. Praise the Lord. It's found in the first four words of Romans 12, 9 through 21. It's summed up like this. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. But we have to understand this fact. It cannot be genuine if you have not repented and trusted in Christ, if you are not saved. This is an impossible feat if you're not saved. You can do this for a season, for a week, a month, maybe a few years, but eventually you're going to crack, you're going to break. You're going to walk up and say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. We see it in people's lives. We've seen friends or or spouses go, I'm done. I I can't do this. I can't fake it anymore. Because only through Christ, and if we are, as John 15, 4 says, if we are abiding in him and him in us, this is the only way that we can have love be genuine. There are 19 different ways that you can have love, that, that love can be genuine, that are expressed in Romans 9 through 21. Let me, give, let me give you a few. One, abhor what is evil. That's easy. I, I hate what is evil. No, it's not as easy as you think. It's going to be more painful because you have, to, you have to ask yourself questions. What do you listen to? Not to say you have to only listen to worship music. Like you can listen to secular songs, but what are the lyrics of these songs? What are they saying? What are they edifying? Where do they say, I support this? What are you watching? What are you enjoying? Does it honor God or does it go against them? There are neutral things out there, I understand, but there's plenty of songs that we like to bop our head to. If it's country, if it's rock, if it's rap, it doesn't matter. All of it can be equally as deplorable in God's eyes, and yet we go, this is a catchy beat. Do you really abhor what is evil? What about holding fast to what is good? Do you dedicate time to, to your time and energy and money to see God's kingdom grow? 
Like, where, where does your money go? Is your money just for yourself? Again, you need bills. You have bills. Take care of your bills. You have children. Invest in those children. But are you trying to help build up God's kingdom or, or your little kingdom? What are you finding security in? Is it in the firearms that you have in your home? Is it in the savings accounts that you have? Or is it in only in Christ alone? And what are your desires? Are you holding fast to our good desires? Or are they just desires that match your own heart rather than the heart of God? How about this third one? Love one another with brotherly affection. One way to do that is to just to pray for one another. But how can you pray for one another in this room? How can you pray for one another in, this life, in life groups? This is why it's so essential for us to be part, uh, plugged in into life groups. Not just so that Pastor Hayden and I can just be excited about, oh, life groups are growing. No, we don't, we don't care about numbers that way. We care about you growing in Christ. That's what we care about. And one way to love one another with brotherly affection is to know each other intimately, caring about each other intimately, and seeking out what are these person's needs and fulfill them. Or, th- or this one, do not be slothful in zeal. Don't be slow to act. Just, you know what to do, just do it. Know that God will give you the strength. Just do it. Or seek to show hospitality. Or even combine this with seek to ho- show, uh, show hospitality, but, and don't be haughty. Associate the lowly. How about this, this week? Challenge you, here's the challenge for you this week. Invite someone to your home that you normally would not for dinner, for breakfast, for coffee, for just to hang out to watch a football game. Invite someone that you would not normally do. Invite someone within, the, within your life group, within the church, or even your neighbor. Oh, they're kind of awkward. Bring them in. They always bring up politics. Bring them in. Show hospitality. Or this way, live in harmony with one another. Or if possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Meaning it's sacrificing what you want to do, saying, you know, I, I, what do you want to do? It's going to your spouse saying, you know what, what do you want to do this for vacation? I will concede. I will say, you know what, I want to do what you want to do. If we start to humble ourselves, God will use this to start to eradicate the pride, of our li- pride out of our lives. Instead, place it where it's properly, where it's supposed to be. On God and to others. That is the point. And we start to build these biblical habits just using Romans 12, 9 through 21, we start to using, by God's strength, abiding in Christ, in Christ alone, because you are saved, if you are saved, if we start to develop these habits, God will help eradicate the pride out of our lives and replace it with humility, with gratitude, and with the servant's heart. Now imagine if we all did this. What kind of church, Compass Bible Church, would be? Imagine how bright with me, where this church would stand out in a culture that is so self-focused. Imagine how bright we would be where people would just be drawn. I mean, I don't want to say it like this, but this is the only way I can think about it. Like bugs to a, a little fly zapper that is drawn. And it's like, this light is bright. I have to know. I have to come and see what this is all about. And when they do that, guess what they hear? They hear the gospel. They hear the hope. And they get to be saved because they rightly responded. Imagine if we just eradicated pride of our lives, if we responded with humility, rooted in the grace of God, how bright this church will be to a lost world. I would love to have better laws, 
But better lives will be passed a lot easier if we shared the gospel primarily in our lives every single day to see people get saved, to have their minds and hearts renewed, to say, you know what? I want to make laws and dictate Texas law or American law that uh, follows God's law. If we want that, we have to share the gospel first. Which is going to tie into the third step. Well, here's the plot twist, which actually is the first step to develop a grateful life. But this final step is the most important step. It's found in Luke 7, beginning in verse 48. So Jesus just had an epic smackdown with Simon the Pharisee, using the woman, a humble woman, as an example to show how prideful he was and how dependent he was. Say, so you are a sinner too, Simon. You need me as much as she does. And so he turns to the woman, you know, he focuses and dials in on the woman and says to her, your sins are forgiven. Unfortunately, we're too used to those words. We think, well, duh, he's Jesus. Well, this is a big deal. You have to understand the context. Because in verse 49, they were at the table. They began to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? In Luke 4 to, Luke 4 to 9, unfortunately, we can't do a series right now. Maybe in years to come. But Luke 4 through 9, it's a series of who is this guy? Who is Jesus? This guy, he's, he's, who is this guy who controls creation? Who is this guy who can cast out demons? Who is this, this guy who can forgive sins? Because they knew, well aware, that only God can forgive sins. Only a divine king can forgive sins. Only the, the divine king Messiah can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? We have to see of how big of a deal this is for us. Otherwise, we're going to miss the point. Because they forgot what the, all the scriptures were saying. It's pointing to that Jesus is the one that forgives sins. And that's what's emphasized in verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith, not your works, not your love, your faith in me has saved you, has delivered you. Go in peace. Now, growing up Lutheran at the end of each service would say, go in peace and serve the Lord. That's what we would say. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Or some people who are Star Wars fans, you know, go in peace, may the force be with you. This is not what he's saying. When he says peace, this is important. Peace and rest. Peace and rest. Essentially, it's the Edenic peace that they're looking for. Meaning Eden. The peace that humanity had in Eden. What do you mean peace? They were dwelling with God in person. Right now, we're separated from God from our sin. Isaiah 59 two. We're separated from God because of our sin. But there's a hope, there's a future that we get to dwell with Jesus, with God again. Edenic peace is not lost. This is the big deal. This is why we need to know our Old Testament. And this is why we need to know the whole Bible so well. Because we'll understand these things. That when he says, go in peace, he's saying, the Edenic peace will be given to you now. It's promised through me. Here are five passages. I want you to do this as a personal study. This is more for you to help grasp the significance of, of what the, the Bible writers are trying to do. The first reference is Isaiah 61, 1 through 6. Because this, this prophecy was read by Jesus in Luke 4, saying, I'm going to fulfill this in a series of events. That the oppressed will be brought out of darkness and into light. The forgiveness of sins is found in this Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1 through 6. And then even Luke Luke, in his two books, by the way, Luke wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts. Luke is the gospel of, of essentially, the, the work of Jesus. The book of Acts is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Luke 1, 68 to 79. Luke 1, 68 to 79. 
The author of Luke, through the Holy Spirit, wrote down to say, this is who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to fulfill this. He's going to have the forgiveness of, he's going to be able to bring the forgiveness of sins. And then it ends in Luke 24. The book of Luke ends in Luke 24, saying that Jesus telling him that, you know, to understand Scripture, that Scripture declares that I would suffer and on the third day will rise from the dead and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations. And then we start to see that in Acts you can write down Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. After Peter's sermon to a crowd and it pierced their heart, they asked him, what do we do? We realized, I am prideful. I need to humble myself. What do I do? He says, he says here in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And Acts 28.28-31. Luke ends his second book with Paul, t- describing Paul, how he was with the Gentiles proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is the forgiveness of sins to the Gentiles. Meaning, forgiveness of sins is not only to the Jews, God's chosen people, but also to the Gentiles. Essentially, forgiveness of sins is to the world. It's for everyone, who, uh, who everyone in this world. And these verses will show you there's a clear arc from beginning to end of the Bible that Jesus is the divine king who can forgive not just my sins, not just the Jews' sins, but your sins as well. In order to develop a grateful life, you need to do first and foremost, and most importantly, point number three, trust in Christ's forgiveness alone. And this is a twofold. Trust in his Christ's forgiveness alone for your life, but also for the life of the people around you, the people next to you. If you have a family member or a loved one, or a friend that is not saved, they are not Christians, guess what? You need to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. You can't not do it. You can't manipulate them enough. You can't convince them enough. You need the Holy Spirit. You need God to break their heart. But guess what? It can happen. From our sending church, I remember listening to a live Q&A that the, our, our, for my former pastor gave where someone asked him what, what to do. He was feeling burdened. He's been praying for his, his wife's salvation. And he's like, what do I do? I, I'm tired. He kind of smirked, which I thought was weird. I'm like, here's a guy pouring out his heart and you're smirking. Okay. But he says, how long have you been praying for? Kind of a test. And sometimes I heard like, oh, for a few weeks. He's like, for three years. That seems like a long time right there. Three years. He goes, well, good job. Keep going. Still doesn't beat 50. Will you be, are you willing to pray for 50 years for the salvation of your spouse, trusting Christ alone can forgive their sins? He said, yeah, it is. He said, let me encourage you with the story. There's a woman from our, from, our, from our sending church who is just a sweet woman. And for 50, 5-0, not 15, 50, 5-0 years, she prayed for her husband's salvation, enduring a horrible marriage, enduring a terrible marriage, but yet, trusted in Christ alone for not only for her sins, because she repented and trusted in Christ, but trusted that her husband could be saved too through the forgiveness found in Christ. And for 50 years she prayed that, and guess what? Before he died, what did he do? God broke him down, and he repented and trusted in Christ. 50 years may seem long, but for eternity, 50 years is nothing to eternity. And so for her eyes, and what we need to see is that we need to trust in Christ alone, no matter how long it may feel for us, for not only our own salvation, but the salvation of the people that we love. 
there's three things that we need to understand when we understand what the, forg- the forgiveness is fully found only in Christ alone. Is that Christ can bring anyone. Christ can bring anyone. Trust that Christ can bring anyone. Romans 3, 22 to 26. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Not for some, not for just the Jews or the nice people of Compass Bible Church Hill Country. No, for all, anyone who believes in me. For there is no distinction. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right of politics, Democrat, Republican, from Texas or not from Texas. If you're born a Christian or not a Christian, if you're an atheist, it doesn't matter. God can forgive you. You have to trust that Christ, and it's only Christ who can do it. You can't do it yourself. No other human being can do it. It is not Muhammad. It is not Buddha. It is Christ and Christ alone because he is the only divine king. So here's the application. Stop trying to save yourself. And stop trying to save other people. You'll burden yourself. You'll break yourself down. What I'm not saying is, what I'm not saying is don't share the gospel. I'm saying share the gospel. Continue to share the gospel. Keep praying. Because here's the second thing. Christ's forgiveness gives us hope. If we know that the divine king is in charge and is sovereign and can soften anyone's heart, we can have hope that this, any person, especially the hardest person that you can think of in your, think of the worst sin in your life. That's not yourself, all right? We already established that you're the worst in your own life. But think of someone else. They too can be saved. No matter if it's a daughter, if it's a son, if it's a grandchild or grandparent or parent or best friend from high school or college, they can be saved. Listen carefully. Don't, if you don't believe me, listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I thought this is hope. We're getting there. Do not be so deceived. Neither is the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, ad- nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I thought there was hope in there, Evan. Verse 11. Memorize verse 11. Write it down somewhere for you to see. The next time you see someone that is sinning, you go, why on earth would they do that? I can't believe they would lie like that. I can't believe they would support that person like that. I can't believe they would say something like that. Remember verse 11. Uh, and such were some of you. You were greedy. You were sexually immoral. You were drunkards, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If anyone on that list can be washed, sanctified, and justified, then anyone, everyone in this room and everyone in your life can be saved, and this should give us hope. So keep praying. Keep praying for that person's salvation. Don't stop. Keep sharing the gospel to that person. Don't stop. Keep enduring, even though it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere. Keep going, because God can do it. And lastly, when we trust in Christ alone, it, it unleashes a grateful life. And this is where the whole gratefulness ties in. We first have to trust in Christ alone. We have to first, we have to humble ourselves. We have to remove the pride out of our lives. When with that gratefulness, which is no longer a tool used by the world, it's just an expression in you because of what God has done. Listen, write down these passages. They're on your application questions. Just circle them on the back of your application questions and read them and hold them tight. Just listen real carefully to two accounts of people who trusted in Christ alone and were delivered. Mark, the first one is Mark 5, 18 to 20. 
This is a man who was demon who's possessed by a legion, thousands of demons, who was delivered by Christ. So after that, verse 18, this demon possessed man, as he, sorry, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, thousands of demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not, and Jesus did not permit him, saying to him, Go home to your friends. But there's more. Go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he, the demon-possessed man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis and to the Gentile region, the cities of the Gentile region in Palestine, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. They knew how much sin this man was in. So maybe you're on this track, more like me. Your sinful past can pile up and, and scare people. But guess what? God can still deliver you. God can still forgive you. And if he does deliver you, you will feel this gratitude that will be unleashed at people, and they will marvel at your sins. But let's talk about another woman. John 4, 25 to 30. This is the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. The Samaritans, then the outcast, the Jewish people saw them as an outcast, and an inbred people who, who fell into sin. Jesus is conversing with this woman. So in this conversation, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, which Christ means Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. In verse 28, so the woman left the water jar and went away into the town. She left what she was doing and just ran and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the divine king, the Messiah? Then they went out. These people went out of the town and were coming to him. And if you read later in John 4, what happens? They believed and got saved. You have two accounts. One of someone in extreme depravity. And maybe you're in that bucket. You have sin hidden in your life, and you're like, I do not want anyone to know. You can be delivered. And some of us, you think, oh, okay, we're, we're okay, we're pretty good. Here's a woman going, no, I am depraved, I am fallen, but here's the man who forgives sins. And guess what they do? Their grateful heart was just unleashed by proclaiming what happened. So this is why it's important to remember your testimony. Study your testimony. See what God has done in your life. Study your sin intimately. Be horrified by it, but study God's mercy and grace all the more and see how wonderful and merciful this God is. While we were enemies, died for us. And then with that, that will fuel you to be so grateful that you will be unleashed onto this city, onto this hill country, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be to help people to be delivered from darkness into light. You have an opportunity to continue the ministry that Jesus proclaimed in Isaiah 61 to find people to take up the oppressed out of darkness and into the light. Imagine how many people we plucked out out of their sin on their highway to hell and placed into the love and mercy of Christ. That is what a grateful life does. It unleashes the gospel to this world. But you first have to find peace with God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test your faith. 
see rather if you are in the faith. Some of you are not saved in this room. Some of you are being convicted. I'm saying, don't wait. Stop waiting. Stop ignoring God. Please, I beg you, I beseech you, please, just repent and trust in Christ. Find the mercy that he offers and then join us with Compass. Join us to not unleash our opinions at Compass, not to unleash our preferences, to unleash the good news that salvation is found through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Don't start our outreach on December 18th. Start today and continue until you die or until God calls you home. Join with me as we express a grateful life for what God has done. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace for all that you provide. God, I just pray and just know those people in this room, Lord, we're not going to have an altar call. We're not going to call people forward. We're not going to make people pray a prayer. But God, I do pray that your spirit would just convict and suppress them and break them so that, Lord, they would repent and trust in you. And God, help all of us here to develop grateful lives that want to submit and glorify you and to unleash the gospel out of gratitude to the world around us so that Lord, we can see a revival in New Braunfels in the hill country within Texas and the United States. God, help us to be rooted in you and you alone. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.